All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by his power. What, know you not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-20 through 20. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. My name is Jason Tackett. Today we are going to be delving into the topic, the difficult topic, of sexuality. And we are going to look at it from a biblical perspective. And in that perspective, we are going to see how the Bible presents to us a view of sexuality that is not just different from everything that is taught to us in the world, but is beautiful and is full of meaning and purpose and value. I hope that you will receive something from the Lord today. So jumping right in, through this very difficult and hard topic. I first want to kind of use as a springboard to this conversation a very clear verse of Scripture that kind of sums up what the biblical idea of sexuality is. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says this, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And the reason this is a very difficult topic, this topic of sexuality, is is there is no real compromise that someone who believes in the Bible can have about the subject of sexuality. And because of this, it becomes the the whipping post that the Christian is judged by the world, especially in this society where sex seems to be everything. And it's, it's more than everything uh, to people in our culture now. Um, as opposed to times past, uh, sex was seen as an activity. It wasn't something that necessarily defined who you were, but in our culture, sex is seen as synonymous with a person's identity. 
And if you begin to say that anything is wrong with anything sexually, you are seen as attacking a person's very essence, their very identity. And that is why the subject of sexuality has become so difficult. The ability of one to openly express that identity is considered the bedrock of political freedom. And now every private sexual desire seems to be subject to political debate. And therefore, you're not just attacking someone's identity if you begin to parse out sexuality and ideas of right and wrong. But you are you are taking away their political freedom. You are, you are oppressing them in a way. And anyone who attempts to speak of morality is considered to be part of this oppressor class. And their beliefs are considered as psychologically harmful to the health and well-being of others. A, th- th- this creates quite a conundrum for Christianity, those who embrace Christianity in our culture. A move is therefore made to criminalize, and we can all see this on the horizon, criminalizing and silencing voices that attempt to set moral limits on sexual behavior. And it's attacked The idea that there are moral limits on sexual behavior is attacked as patriarchy and its teaching on the meaning and purposes of the nuclear family is driven out of education and out of a talk in the public square. It's no longer okay for us to even talk in the very terms that the Bible speaks as being ideal. And while this muzzling of morality occurs, the culture pushes in the opposite direction to legitimize and celebrate all forms of sexual activity as necessary to political progress, including the radical sexualization of children. So there's little room for compromise between the Christian view and the current culture view. And the reason for this shift in culture is the rejection of the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is no longer seen as, as applicable to anything in our life. It is seen as, as, at best, as reactionary to what they call progress. And the reason for the shift is is not just a rejection of the Christian worldview as a whole, but the but of objective truth. There are objective truths that are essential to any understanding of human nature. The chief is of that is that the human being is created in the image of God. And as such, all meaning and purpose for the human being and not just a human being, but the human body, in reality, is defined by God according to the Christian, according to the, to the message of the Scripture. 
And any philosophy of life that teaches that one can create themselves contrary to the meaning and purpose of God is not just untrue, it's dangerous. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That was Romans 1.21. Culture has rejected this ideology in favor of a model of self-creation. Uh, after the pattern of, of existential philosophy that started with, with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and, and on through on through the the existentialists of the of the 20th century all per in this ideology this this model of self-creation all purpose in reality is gone with the death of god there is no nature there is no meta-narrative in the terms of post-modern philosophy. There is no meta-narrative to give pur purpose and meaning to the human being, to the human body, to human history. There, there, there is no overarching truth. Meaning and purpose in this ideology are products only of the individual mind. Reality, thus, becomes only the psychological structures created in the mind of the individual, thus self-creation. And, and I think a, a good example of this would be uh, the Disney uh, cartoon or film Inside Out. Um, and in that movie, it presents a character named Riley, a young child, and it presents the char that character as having a reality that is completely made up of the structures they created in their own thought life. Real reality is what they think it is. There is no meaning and purpose beyond the inherent to the I've lost my, myself. There's no meaning or purpose beyond that to their bodies or to their beings or to the rest of creation or to time itself or anything else. So this model of self-creation uh, after the pattern of existential philosophy was, was added to by the advent of people like Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud came along and reduce the psychological makeup of the individual to sexual desire at all areas, not just when you hit puberty, but at all areas of development, and even, according to Freud, in infancy. And even though Freud's ideas have been rejected wholesale by the science of psychology, still culture has embraced this idea that the core of every being is their sexual desire. And that makes up their identity. Thus, 
are the ideas of the sexual revolution. And thus is our cultural world shaped politically. Political freedom is now the ability to express one's inward desires openly. There is no truth in such a world, but only the freedom to go find and define one's own truth. There is no good in self-creation, but individuals declaring what is good for themselves. There is no beauty, for there is no standard of beauty, and we are all forced to pretend that the ugliness produced by our sinful lives and the sinful lives of individuals around us is beautiful to us, too. So, sexuality in our culture is far from being... It's far from being anti-Christian or just anti-Christian. It, 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 it is shaped and built upon, upon a good century or more of, of Western thought and philosophy. And it's come to the point, as, as Carl R. Truman has said in his recent book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it is it has become commonplace now for almost everybody who has been inundated by our culture to see sexuality as part of who we are as in in fact not just part of it the greatest part of who we are as human beings and among many of the common denominators in human experience is is that experience of sexual desire and and that's part of the reason why the cultural philosophy is so alluring to many uh and and even consider it to be liberating it is it touches on that thing that that is a driving force in almost everyone's mind and hearts and one of the main reasons why I wanted to deal with this issue is is this is what I want to tell my kids as they grow old and, and as they as they become adults and as they're inundated with messages from the culture uh, that the biblical view of sexuality is 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 not this rigid thing it's it's beautiful and it's holy and it's good and that's something that our modern culture cannot offer them so it's amazing that something that's so universal in human experience can be so controversial uh, it's the most private aspect of our lives or lives of most people but at the same time it's the most publicly discussed uh, it sells everything from from uh, fruit to cakes to cars. Uh, um, it, 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 it we're inundated with met sexual messages all day long. Uh, this very private part of our life is very public. The the way one views and practices sexual activity speaks 
volumes of that person. It speaks of their ethics. Uh, it speaks of their politics. It, it, it informs the spiritual and religious views of, of many people. Many people reject Christianity, for instance, because of sexual desire. Jean-Paul Sartre, the existential philosopher, for instance, a uh, famous atheist, summed up his rejection of God and the Bible by stating that he did not want God to exist because he wanted to be free sexually. And many people carry that very same sentiment with, with, without such bold honesty that Jean-Paul Sartre uh, expressed. He only articulated what many who embrace atheism and agnosticism desire. They may not be as frank as he was, but sexual freedom is part of their reason for rejecting God. Bertrand Russell, another famous atheist in the 20th century, uh, stated that the worst aspect of Christianity is its view of sexual morality. And currently... The desire to overthrow Christ is sexually motivated almost above other things. Moral, uh, mor the sexual morality of Christianity is, is repugnant to people. As such, there, there has been a great amount of work done to create a post-Christian culture, a culture that is empty of normative Christian values on sexuality. And that's really what we see uh, the outflowing of the sexual revolution. In addition, so social pressure is causing many people to depart from the faith. Christians have allowed the world to define what they believe about sex as a straw man and then turn around and paint the Christians as bigots for believing what the world says they believe. So there's a need for us to define what we believe. Because no one wants to be a bigot, not in this culture. Uh, I know that I felt this pressure in, when I was in college, uh, taking college classes um, about 12, 12, 13 years ago. Um, the sociology professor uh, knew that I was a Christian. And in front of a class of about 150 people, uh, pointed me out as a Christian and asked me as a Christian what I believed about homosexuality, to which I had to answer honestly, and to which he took the opportunity in front of his entire class to tell me to my face that he believed I was a bigot. And to which I answered, I said, at what point does my belief about sexual morality make me, a, or morality in general, make me a bigot? If I say adultery is a sin, am I a bigot? If I say fornication or sex before marriage or outside of marriage is wrong, am I a bigot? If I say what Christ said, to look upon a woman is to lust after her in your own heart, does that make me a bigot? And of course, he went on to attack the Christian worldview and the straw man that he set up and belittled me in front of the entire college class. Uh, and I learned a thing or two there. I mean, I learned that I don't want to be called a bigot. Uh, I, I didn't want to answer the question in front of all those people. We do little to combat 
these attacks by having very little understanding concerning our own beliefs. We need to be the ones defining to the world what we believe. We need to be the ones defining to our children what we believe. We need, we, we, we need to be the ones defining in our church what the Christian belief about sexuality is. And we have to be able to do this because there is a tide of anti-Christian sentiment that is rolling over our culture. And it's taking everything with it. It's not just our children that are having their sexual beliefs in practice formed by education, the media, but it's every one of us. Unless we have shut out the outside world completely, which I have not, we find ourselves inundated with sexual messages on a daily basis. And all those messages are contrary to our faith. And I'm not just talking about the, the things that we consider big and egregious, egregious but the, the, the small messages, the, the little innuendos, all, all, all these things that, 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 that are punchlines to the world are, are contrary to our faith. An understanding of what the Bible teaches about sex is important. I mean, we are sexual I mean, we have a gender. I'm a male. I'm a, I, that, 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 it doesn't define all that I am, but I am sexual. We need an understanding of what the Bible teaches about sexual purposes and values. Because sexual conduct and sexual misconduct, rather, and sexual sins plague Christians that name the name of Christ. Almost, some people say almost as much as the outside world. And I've been through a minute, enough churches to know that, that, that that's not necessarily a false accusation against the Christian world. Every one of us at one time or another has been guilty of committing a sexual sin. And there's a good chance that some that are listening are committing sexual sins presently. Sex is an issue, and we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. And it potentially destroys churches, destroys homes, and destroys professing Christians and their lives. Sexual sins are were prevalent in the early church too. First uh, Corinthians chapter five, uh, Paul had to deal with an open sexual sin. It was a big issue with Israel in ancient times. Numbers twenty-five, for instance, when when God brought a plague on the fornicating Israelites who were committing fornication and worshiping false gods. These issues are not, are, are, they're, they're a big deal. And the sexualization of our culture does not end at the doors of our church. It comes inside of it. It doesn't end at the doors of our home. It, it, and really for us, uh, uh, what we stand for and what we believe sexually should begin there. Uh, it, 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 the numbers that people have shared with me and I've and I've seen 
are are breathtaking when we consider uh, when we consider how the sexual views of professing Christians are turning against the scriptures. I can give you anecdotal evidence of some of some very egregious and terrible things that I've seen in my own life. We rightly ascertain that many of those people that are caught up in sexual sins are uh, may not all be true followers of Christ, but we have to admit that there is ungodliness in us. I have to admit as I talk about the subject that there's ungodliness in me that needs to be conquered by the Spirit of God and brought into line with the clear teachings of the Scripture. We fail to see the spiritual aspect of sexuality and how it informs our view of goodness and the holiness of God as well as informing our moral behavior. What we do tells us about what we believe. There has been, even among professing Christians, the adoption of ancient pagan ideas of sexuality. Do you know most of the pagan idols in the scriptures were sexual? Baal? Fertility gods, things of that nature, uh, were, were, were the gods that they were worshiping. They worship, and they worship them through sex, through temple prostitution, through the sacrificing of unwanted children. All sounds not too far away from our culture. They were fertility gods connected with the overall worship of nature. And unsurprisingly, evolutionary and materialistic teaching have brought us pretty much right back to that very same pagan base and reintroduce this false god of sexuality. And now we have the hookup culture. We have, we have abortion. We have this self-deification we need a view of human nature that again zeroes in on the image of God in us. That we are not independent of God. My body is not independent of God any more than my mind in the world that I live in. This idea of self-creation is not true. We need a redeemed view of sexuality, where God and His Word are high and lifted up, where God as nature's God saves us, not just saving us in the sense of not going to hell, but saves us from the sins that plague us. We need to delight in God above all things and apply the cross of Jesus Christ and His gospel to our lives. If I was to sit down with my kids right now, I would say that we need to apply all these truths in, in a sense of delayed gratification, that there are things that are worth waiting for, greater things, things far more beautiful. There's a need to learn self-denial because we have our Lord who gave himself up for a joy that was set before him.
we, we should stop being weakened by our inability to control and maintain our passions. Life is not about getting what we most immediately desire. We saw that with Samson. Get, get me that woman, he said. Uh, and, and, and his eye eventually affected his heart. The Bible says, warns, uh, someone who is unable to control themselves is like a city that is broken down and without walls. We need to reject the idea that our God is our belly, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. Or rather that our appetites is what it's all about. And that the world is here to serve our appetites. Meat for the belly, belly for the meats. That's what it's all about. I'm here to, to have my appetite filled. And things exist outside of me to fill it. That's a terrible, why are we here? Because we are here ideology. That doesn't answer, it doesn't have purpose, it doesn't have meaning. We need holiness, without which we cannot see or even serve the Lord. And we need that to rule in our hearts so we can have God as our chief object, setting our affection on things above and not on things below. We need to leave the paganism of, of our culture and embrace the idea of what Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 6. Our body is for the Lord and the Lord is for our bodies. We're not our own. This, these hands, these feet, these members belong to him and they're joined to him if we are saved. They are his and he is meant to be our delight. We need not to fall for the satanic lie that God is keeping us back from something. Something enjoyable. Something that we should have. Therefore, God is not worthy of our love and our worship. That was a lie in the beginning. God, God is keeping us back from you because he knows if you took it, you shall be as God's. We need to see sin again as sin and not as addiction or, or self-expression or any of that. We need to see sin. We need to be able to answer the question, is there anything wrong with anything? And we need to have an answer for that. We need to see lust as it truly is, a tool in a spiritual war against our souls to bring us under bondage, to defeat us, to kill us. We also need to see the beauty and goodness of things God has prepared for us. Not just in eternity where we will enjoy God forever, but in this life. And really, we can go on and on with applications and, and the necessity that we have as Christians to engage again in this in this area but for the purpose of of today um and I may not get through all of this and we may have may have to separate this into a couple different parts but the I, I want to talk about how to develop a practical 
biblical understanding of sexuality. Uh, and and I don't don't think I'll get to it today, but I want to lead that into a discussion of 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 an evangelistic understanding of sex, because ultimately, as beautiful and as wonderful as sex is, it leads us to a greater reality and a greater intimacy and into a greater love that the physical act cannot tell us about. It can only give us a shadow, a hint, a taste of something truly greater and ultimately something that leads into an understanding of the gospel. The Bible is the only source of our faith, and I, I don't want to back from that, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to ever let go of that truth that God has spoken into this world, and we as Christians believe that. Uh, if one desires to talk about sex on the foundation of atheism and materialism, and like we've already talked about it, it's morally bankrupt. It, it, it cannot give meaning and value to it. By arguing from reason alone, you can't get to there. So they are prevalent, those, the, the, those ideas are prevalent and unrestrained in our culture. And, and we can learn about them simply by turning on the television or, or, or something of that nature. And it's left our culture filled with people that are in bondage. We're not a free people anymore. We're in bondage to our desires. They strain on a practical level in our culture to differentiate any wrong behavior, no matter how vile or how violent. They have to, they, they, they strain to even say anything is wrong with it. They're unable to establish any moral boundaries, but we have loving boundaries that were given to us of God. So no, I don't want to ever apologize for having a source to my faith. To begin our discussion of practical issues, let us consider sex as it is a political and as it is a biological issue. Modern politics has become very sex-centered. There are two basic views of liberty, for instance, that sum up all of our current political discourse. There is the view that virtue is freedom, that's what we as Christians believe. That if you that freedom belongs to those that are able to govern themselves under the law of God. Now that's what our, the founders of this country, of many of them, uh, believed. Um, that this is for that this Constitution that we have was for a moral and religious people, and it was an in, inadequate for any other. Um, a people that are able to control themselves and control their passions are people who are able to live in freedom. Government begins with this individual possessing, according to Paul, 
in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, possessing their own vessel in sanctification and honor. And it even says that's the will of God for us. Such people that, are, that live the, under the rule of God are the ones that are truly free. The, uh, or as the Bible says elsewhere, to the pure, all things are pure. The other political view is that sex is freedom. That's our culture. In fact, sex is considered the most basic freedom, as we said earlier. Uh, uh, it's, uh, to set any boundary to sex is to attack someone politically, to attack their very freedom that they believe they have. And current political debate about almost every issue goes back to the sex is freedom thing. Health care, gender, homosexuality, abortion, all of it is built on this, on this idea that the fundamental political right is sex. Because that's what defines us. That's what makes in the idea of the world who we are with no reference to God. Just who we are and who we as our own gods have created ourselves to be. And this bleeds into an encroaching on the freedom of speech and religion and press by calling uh, for legislation to silence those that have moral declarations contrary to sexual liberty. The, uh, the doctrine of the sexual revolution has always been about not just people being free to have sex with whoever and whatever they want, but the ideology that drove the sexual revolution is to deny people the ability to even say anything is wrong. It should be without restraint even restraint from public and private opinion. And that's ultimately what someone must believe if they believe that sex is freedom. And the problem is that that freedom based on virtue doesn't involve anyone else but the individual and God and their conscience before God, the freedom of conscience before God. And the principle is, is that the body is made for the Lord and the Lord is made for the body the, to glorify God with and to enjoy the pleasures of the body only within the boundaries that God has given us. And thus the individual is free to do what is right without affecting others. To the contrary, uh, freedom based on sex is not limited to the individual. To claim absolute sexual freedom is to be indifferent to how it affects or possibly harms others or even culture at large, i.e. children or uh, the mental health issues uh, that arise from sexual victimization, larger health care concerns like disease, disease treatment, things like this, uh, and the large cost that comes with this the large cost that sexual liberty has caused us in the, in the uh, criminal justice system or things of that nature. But um, it demands that everyone legitimize and celebrate what I want. If you believe in sex, that sex is freedom, that's where you end up at. Further, being tied to personal pleasure and the use of others unless someone is to claim themselves to be self-sexual. There's always the use of others involved. It tends toward bondage. 
regarding both the user and the one that is used. And this is so innately known by the advocates of absolute sexual freedom that they do not even blush to exhibit the earmarks and tokens and imagery of bondage. That's so opposed to the freedom and liberty of virtue. And it's really the tyranny of addiction. And that gets into biological issue. We understand what sexuality actually is when we understand that God created us spiritually in his own image, but he is the one that formed our bodies. We have to start with biology itself. The scripture declares he made them male and female. Even if one decides to set apart a scripture, they are still confronted with the male, female, biological, sexual functions that underlay the reality of all animal life. The human being has a set sexual function. Uh, I believe it was uh, Peter Kreft. I always mispronounce this. Kreft. Uh, that says all of us are sexual. <laughs> I'm a male and you're a female. Uh, the, the, we all have, have sex. We all have a sex. We all have a functioning sexual nature. Sexual reproduction can only occur in a certain kind of relationship. If one was to look at the issue of sexuality through the prism of materialistic, atheistic evolution, which is faulty, there is no other biological function. Now, sure, there's bacteria that, that reproduce by cell division, but the animal life is decidedly divided into specific sexual functions. In fact, the existence of things like homosexuality, far from being uh, uh, an example of an example of of uh, atheism, is an example of the of the of the belief of the Christian that the human will, though rebellious and fallen and sinful. exist and it even goes against sometimes its function it couldn't ha so that couldn't happen in a in a survival of the fittest framework it proves the immaterial will sinful as it is which proves the existence of the immaterial which show which leads directly to the feet of God, that we do not live solely in a material world. However, the mere fact of the biological function does not create the content of sexual desire. Sex goes beyond biological function in regards to the chemical makeup of the human being. It involves the pleasure centers of our brain. As such, the content of desire is itself malleable. It lies in the will and what it will conform or, or 
uh, whether it conforms to the reality of God or rejects or rebels against it. In, in this sense, one can say that sexual desire is formed by the social and psychological makeup of the individual. Though it reflects the moral and material will as well, or the soul of the individual in deciding to, to seek certain stimuli. Whatever sexual stimulation and or pleasure is exercised in the, in the individual's mind, it will begin to create content uh, of sexual desires. And this stimulation may be made by personal choices or be molded in us by, by outside forces or choices of others. But whatever the mind finds pleasure in, it starts to mold our brains to, to, to be stimulated by those things. So we have to be careful about the content um, that we expose ourselves to because it creates these strongholds, can create strongholds in our minds. And, and like Pavlov's dog, it conditions us to respond to certain stimulus. And, and if you're constantly uh, exposed to certain forms of stimulus, you will constantly respond to the perverse, Titus 1.15. Nothing is pure. You can, we can make our minds like that, and we can... And we can uh, and we can, all, it, we can act sexually in a way that almost or does mirror that of addiction. That's why the Bible warns, flee youthful lust. Like any addiction, once the content is acted upon repeatedly, it becomes something hardwired, like the stronghold of 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. And that is why certain persons may describe themselves as, as acting on compulsion. They're having no control over their own sexual desires. That's why I believe it's not wise to sexualize children because those things can be formed in them. For the Christian, we have to speak about sexuality in the terms of God's purposes, God's functions, God's designs. So when we speak of sexuality, we speak both of the natural biological function and the content of sexual desire that is present in every individual. Differing content in tense, but but what is potentially present in, the, in each and every individual. The biological aspect of sexuality is God created and designed sex. That seems odd because that's not something we normally hear in church, but God created a design and assigned it. Uh, sexuality to people. No one has control of their biology. You now we have come to a place in society that we believe that we can control biology. That we, and, but but we can't. We we don't have that ability. There is a nature, a meta narrative, a truth about what we are. 
on a physical level. And while we can maybe manipulate things about the outside and even manipulate consequences of biology to a certain extent, we cannot change on a fundamental level what we were given of God. God is sovereign. He's in control. And it is an act of foolish rebellion against God to believe otherwise. And what is sad for many is they are trying to fight one of the most basic gifts that God has given them. The content, on the other hand, of one's personal sexuality is chiefly determined by individual choices that we make in life or unfortunately others put upon us it exists in the realm of moral responsibility so so when we're looking at it biologically we're looking at what god has concretely in a material world created when we're looking at it as to far as the content of sexual desire, we are entering the realm of moral responsibility. And I believe, and every Christian believes, that every decision we make is in a moral context and is subject to God's law. Like when we were talking about ethics, well, we are responsible to choose what is right. We should seek to honor our God, not just by submitting to his biological choices that he made in creating us, but by forming, conforming our life to his law. So sexuality for the Christian is conformed to God's purpose in creation and conforming to God's God's direction in his word. And it would be pertinent to explain one further thing before we get into the meat of our discussion. It is not my intent, and it should be no Christian's intent, to lord over people's consciences. The consciences of men and women. When I, when I tried to study out sexuality, uh, I found all kinds of sources uh, that that were lording over conscience, uh, forbidding things, and and uh, uh, regarding intimacy between man and wife, or or, and there there is a sense where there should be a liberty in the joy that God has given us, but God has so, so God has good things for us in this subject and and we're not trying and christians should not try to be the conscience of everyone in that in this area the verse we read over there marriage is honorable in all in in in, in every way in the bed undefiled so there is a sense of grace liberty to the Christian who is conforming himself to God's word. And, and 
there are also other hurtful extremes that go the other way um, in the application of biblical principles. Some wish to claim that all sexuality is permissible as long as love is involved. Love becomes the catchword, which uh, that, that just covers everything. Um, uh, some would not quite go as far, but they would claim that that uh, uh, as long as there is an avoidance of self selfishness or something to that sense or some arbitrary principle, our principles do have to come from God's word if we are truly following Christ. I think Dr. Laura Schlesinger uh, might have said it best when she said, go and enjoy the right thing. Uh, and that was always very sound advice for the Christian. So, so to that matter, as as we open up this subject, the first thing that we want to notice in our discussion of sex is that sex has a divine origin. Um, uh, the the giant leap uh, that we said to, for. Um, for the evolutionists and the material philosopher is is to go from basic bacteria, which is which reproduces by cell division, and there's this great leap that defies evolution itself to this idea of sexuality uh, becoming the basis of reproduction, and and the biblical account makes greater sense. It's something we know to be true, that there is an origin, and 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 evolution doesn't explain that. Um, sexual reproduction lessens the likelihood of successful reproduction and challenges uh, the idea of of uh, survival of the fittest. Uh, so, so so it it really is one of those points that makes material uh evolution quite absurd uh but the christian has no problem no no such problem they see sexuality as given of god created by god and therefore it's a good thing as long as it occurs within the purposes that he created man without god may come to worship the creature instead of the creator but there are still goodness in the creature and 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 it's something the creation itself is something that is good uh, to make an idol out of the creature to and to worship its images is to embrace evil the creature like all other things created and sanctified by god is good and sex is part of that um and there are some mistaken ideas even among people who call themselves biblical about the origin of sex. I've, there, there are sex out there that see uh, a sexual acts as sinful inherently and related to the original sin. And that's outside of the scriptural boundaries. God created man and woman. He created humani humanity with all of its functions physically. Consider the account of creation. Does it not say that God formed these physical bodies? Moreover, does not God 
know our desires and our feelings? Did he not create those in us? The body is for the Lord. Therefore, the pleasures and desires of the body can, when submitted to God, bring God glory. The scriptures do not teach us that God looked down on all on on all things and said everything is good except and but after he had created man and woman after he had brought them together after he had instructed them to bring forth fruits which was sexual in nature he said it was very good the first time it ever said anything wasn't good was when the man was alone without the woman and he could not find a help meet, a suitable help. God said it was not good for man to be alone. Therefore, we immediately see the fact that God created sex and declared that it was and still is a good thing. Like I said, the first command that he gave man, kind, uh, is in first uh, or in Genesis uh, one twenty six. Uh, he said, "Be fruitful, be uh, to multiply." Uh, that's sexual in nature. Uh, he God did the very first wedding ceremony, created woman, brought woman to man. It says they were naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. God did that. And there's no mistake then that the first miracle that Christ performed in the in the in the Gospels was at a wedding. And the Bible even closes with a divine invitation to a wedding. In that text in Genesis chapter two about the first wedding. The first newly weds were sent off by Adam, saying, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God did that. And listen to what Adam said there. Adam wasn't just speaking of himself, because he didn't have a mother. He was created of God. But he was speaking of how this divine origin would be communicated throughout the generations. The word cleave and the word words one flesh intimates not only a level of sensuality, but the closest possible intimacy between two people. They were both said to be naked and without shame. There is no shame attached to a God-honoring and sanctified physical relationship between a man and wife. It is something good and given of God and ordained of God. God was pleased with it, with the closest and sexual intimacy of our first parents, and he's still the same God today. Gnostic and Platonic thought is too often couched in Christian terminology and mistaken for Christianity itself. Uh, it teaches that the spirit alone is good and the physical is evil and therefore sex is something shameful and that's wrong. 
Jesus Christ himself quoted the very first honeymoon ceremony <laughs> that we just quoted from Genesis to lend credence to the goodness of the marriage bed. Solomon would join course concerning the goodness and beauty of sex, naming it a one among one of the created wonders. Proverbs 30, 18 and 19, Solomon said, There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. It was a created wonder. The materialist and atheist cannot see any real beauty or goodness in sex, no matter how much, uh, how much they drive the conversation of sexuality and are allowed to to direct it. They can't present to us anything with real beauty, created beauty, and goodness. They can only see it as an amoral thing, a mere function of survival. But for the Christian. We can see the creative beauty and goodness of sex as it is divinely given to us by God. Christianity has a higher view of sex than modern culture does. For the modern culture, it's just meant to be uh, it's meant to be an expression of our own, own selfish wills. Even in Freud, who who was the founder of our current uh, sexual ideology of, of our sex being our identity, the founder of that idea saw sex as an expression of dark, dark lust. But God created it and meant it to be this fulfilling thing that he was pleased with this in this monogamous relationship that helps provide the most significant pleasures and enjoyments and intimacy of our life. Modern culture can see no creative beauty nor goodness in sex. The Christian sees both. The divine origin of sex also implies the divinely given boundaries. God created it, so he's defined its boundaries. God limits all of creation in some way, just as the seas go no further than the bounds that God set for them. The goodness of sex is found only in the context and purpose for which God gave it, especially in this fallen world. The context in which God created and condoned sex in the beginning is a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving unto his wife. It is the context of one man and one woman being joined together in a fulfilling, intimate, providing relationship. And it it is the context of them being joined together. And anything outside of that is contrary to the boundaries. You can search the scriptures all day long. You will not find you will not find anything but that being God honoring. 
Christ added the words to the contemporary creation story. He says, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Uh, this is the patriarchy that the present revolutionary wants to destroy and wants to take away from the cultural vision. We could sum up the boundary of sex like this. One man, one woman, faithful to each other till death. Now that does away with this idea of bigotry. People believe, well, Christians are just against homosexuality. Well, no, Christians are against adultery. Christians are against... Uh, uh, Christians are against uh, this idea of anything that threatens this type of relationship. These ideas form the foundation of all marriage vows today, till death. It is there that Hebrews 13.4 says the bed is undefiled. And it's outside of that marriage bed that becomes subject to judgment, where he goes on and says, but horror mongers and adulterers he will judge. What God is saying is that sex that occurs within that circle, within that boundary, is sacred, holy, good, beautiful, fulfilling, significant. The list could go on and on. But what occurs outside of that is sinful, shameful, and to be judged. Marriage, then is the boundary. What happens in the marriage bed is something honorable and sacred and by no means sinful. And fornication and adultery is the opposite. Going back to what Dr. Laura said, we're free to go and enjoy the right thing. Before I end today's discussion, I just want to take a couple more minutes and talk about God's purposes. And then I think I'll have to deal on another day uh, with the evangelical uh, purposes of sex. But but I want to deal with these and uh, just go from there. Uh, the purposes and designs of sex, and there are three God-given functions that God gives it. From the scripture. And the first purpose of sex is the most obvious procreation. As with many creatures which are created of God, the human being is a sexual being. They are more than that, far more than that, as being created in the image of God. But they're not less than that in, in, in this idea. And sex creates life. It is called procreation because it brings forth life. And it's the man and woman participating together in a divine work. 
and and I don't want to get into the aspects of the evangelical side of all of this, but sex is likened to God. God in his being is life giving. He is life and he brings forth life. And so when we're talking about sex, we are talking about that which sustains human life. It is something amazing that God shows this intimate, completely self-giving act to be the basis for human life. It's wrong. Modern theories have attempted to to deny this and and make sex something independent of a life giving act. Modern theories uh, depend upon technology dependent upon technology have tried to wipe out this idea that sex is connected to life uh everything from 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 abortion and and birth control and and things of that nature uh, to to uh, changes in in tort law to allow for no fault divorce and 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 to take that childbearing, life-giving activity away from sex, to make it something less, is really to lose some of its sacredness and holiness that is part of our image-bearing of God. Uh, and and things like pornography and 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 sex industries and things like that always reduce sex to something far more base but sex is life giving so it's wrong to limit the human being simply to being sexual but but we have to see the great place that sexuality is placed for the creation account tells us that we are made in the image of God and God is life and we have and we are given sex and that sex brings forth life it's by that that we are fruitful that we multiply nevertheless while the human being is something more than sexual he as a physical physical creature is not something less than sexual and the purpose of sex in animal nature is always to bring forth that next generation that's why animals have sex they're not having sex for all the reasons that people have sex. They are having sex to bring forth another generation. They are driven by it. But we are much more conscious participants in it as human beings. The male and female creates or er, creatures come together for the life of their kind. The Bible describes this animal drive in all creation by saying each brings forth after his own kind the animal drive is also commended for the created human being god's first command like i said was sexual bring forth be fruitful multiply replenish the earth he commissioned sex 
for the production and care of the next generation. For the from from the beginning of time, marrying and giving in marriage has been the process of the life of humanity. That is why the Christian maintains that children are best served in the marriage relationship or raised in the influence of that relationship. And the next generation is better served by being products of those sexual boundaries. And we see that in our culture as, as, as single parent households and absent fathers have left holes in the lives of children. The command to be fruitful, multiply, or rather the idea of procreation takes on more than just having children. It goes back to the creative mandates to bring forth after its own kind for the glory of the Creator. And humanity is different. His kind is that which is after the image of God. So to be fruitful and the, to multiply, to replenish the earth, has to do with filling the earth with people who are after the image of God. And procreation mandate for man does not mean that they have a lot of children alone, but they, they bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That they bring them up and teach them, as Psalm 78 says, to hope in God, to know God, to know God's word, to seek God. That they demonstrate a life of worship before their children to encourage them in spiritual growth. There is no place for an absent parent in Christianity. And we should provide for the physical needs by clothing. But yes, we provide for the emotional needs by showing them love. But we provide for them spiritually by showing them God. And that's why the Bible says to not care for your own is to be worse than an infidel. Because that's our purpose is to be have that life-giving relationship. To be an absent parent is to be an affront to God. Our society is reeling from the effect of absent fathers leaving emotional holes which are being filled with all manner of wickedness. We see the trend now of absent mothers without natural affection. The spiritual void that is left in this culture is getting deeper. And the mandate to procreate is evangelical. To fill the earth with the glory of God. One preacher said that the greatest way to evangelize the world is to have kids. <laughs> I, I, I agree with him. And even in Christian souls, our love for souls is dampened by our lack of a desire for children. Christian families have come to love the things of the world more than loving souls. And it's seen in their family planning. They want their 1.5 children along with her white picket fence and two-car garage. And that's the sun, that's their idea of the good life. But the first command to win souls is the command to procreate. It is our responsibility to know God and to show God to our families that they may teach the generation to come. Again, Psalm 78. The Christian command to procreate is the foundation of soul winning. The second and third divine purposes of sex are not as obvious 
as um, the purpose of procreation. Although all the aspects of procreation or bringing forth life are not just in, in being there for the act of creating, procreating, but also in the entirety of instilling life into your, uh, of that marriage becoming this life-giving entity. But sex is greater than that. The second purpose is not just is not not just procreation, but pleasure. Thomas Aquinas, the great Christian philosopher, was of the belief that sex, as originally created by God, before the effects of the fall, was even more pleasurable than it is now after the advent of sin. For sin, he said, always robs real joy. I tend to agree with that. And and in our pleasure-crazed society, we have become some of the most unhappy people, even when it comes to this, this idea of finding satisfaction in sex. In our pleasure-crazed society, the Christian is, though afraid to speak, about the enjoyment of pleasure. And there is great pleasure, and it's a gift of God. Truly, we, we, we do not love pleasure above God, but God has indeed given us, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 6, richly all things to enjoy. So there's no sin in enjoying the pleasure of it. Christians recognize pleasure as a creature or creation of God that is good, but may become evil if we, like the lost world, worship and serve the creature instead of the creator. The early Gnostics, according to Paul, would forbid marriage and the eating of meat. (laughs) That fit their belief that the physical was evil and the spiritual alone was good. And in their mind, the pleasure of sex and the pleasures of eating meat were something to be shunned. However, Paul rebuked that idea. He stated every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Uh, If we enjoy the pleasure of created things within the boundaries of God's word and give thanks to him, then there is no shame in our enjoyment. Sex is a lot like food, for we need both for life, but they both provide legitimate form of pleasure. God gave us, and, and I, I never forget the man that think, that prayed for the meal once and prayed to God and, and said, God, thank you for this food and thank you for making it taste so good. <laughs> and I've offered you all before my, my thoughts on this is that is that uh, one of the reasons I believe why I'm 
as certain of the existence of God as the existence of taste buds and the existence of spices to correlate to them um, and sugars and sweets and all these things. Um, but God gave us a need for food and he gave us food. He, but he also designed us for with taste buds and made the food taste good to us. God could have made us without taste buds. He could have made all food taste bland. Instead, he created a world of herbs and spices. <laughs> this, by the way, is, like I said, is, a, is proof of a good God. And the same can be said about sex. So, sex is necessary to our continuing life as a people. But God also gave it pleasure for both the man and the wife. Dostoevsky once said that God who loves man also loves man's happiness. And nothing could be more apt to show that truth than the pleasure a man and his wife can have in one another. Now, the pleasure of sex is described in the Bible, so the Bible is not, doesn't, is not foreign. Consider the following examples. Solomon said about sexual relationship with a marriage in Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as a loving hen in a pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. That's not something you'll hear read out loud on a Sunday morning in church, but the word satisfy, the word ravish, leap off the page as you're reading it, means meaning to delight or to joy, to or to joy, to delight, to the point of ecstasy. That's how God described, described this created wonder. One would have to be blind not to see the pleasure of sex between the man and his wife described in the book of Solomon as they sought each other and took pleasure in one another. And books be, could be filled with sexual intensity where both man and wife in that context of the Song of Solomon was brought forth. And there's a deeper theological meaning that we'll have to deal with next week. Other examples could be given, but for the sake of time, we're going to pass. God has designed pleasure for us, enjoyment for us, within his boundaries, within his purposes. The enjoyment of legitimate pleasures are a gift of God. In addition to... In addition... Experience to experience and within God's boundaries is is something that God delights in, and it's beyond whatever sin could offer. The pleasures of sin are but for a season, and they end in bringing all manner of evil and shame and judgment. I mean, for a culture that is driven by unrestrained sexual pleasure, saying that it gives some kind of identity, we are the most depressed culture 
Nevertheless, the pleasure that is sanctified by God in marriage, it rejoices in its purity and is fulfilling beyond description. Um, I want to go on and just quickly, and I'll stop here, but the last God-given purpose of sex is not as obvious. The least obvious, but it's the most profound, I believe. And there's a fourth purpose that is evangelical that we'll have to touch on when we have more time. But this is one of the most important God gave sex for the purpose of fellowship and communion between a man and his wife. It's especially lost in the modern thought about sex. Modern sexual philosophy allows for sex without meaning or relationship. Hooking up, casual sex, things of that nature, are the fruits of a modern sexual philosophy that leads to confusion because sex was intended to be a close intimate relationship between a man and wife. I think Christians for too long have presented sex as an idea that is forbidden to young people who turn, who in turn label the Christian to be some kind of killjoy. Sex is not forbidden. It's sacred. It's holy. It's, it's sanctified by God. That, that is precisely why it is sinful to go outside of the marriage boundaries. It is something that God gave to a man and woman that give themselves to one another in the marriage relationship. And there is an incredible giving of oneself that is taking place. It is something that God gave to us to give ourselves to each other. It is that that is really honorable and undefiled. It's a holy place of communion between two people. Consider again the first wedding ceremony. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. There is something mysterious that happens in the marriage bed that God simply describes as joining together and becoming one. As much as this generation wants to reduce sex to something that is merely physical, and without meaning outside of this idea of self-creation that is completely devoid of any real care for the other, they can't do it. There is something much more than a physical exchange that happens during sex. An idea that is taught by our modern prophets of lust that drags the humanity down to this base and unfilling level of animals. Sex is something intimate, a sharing of one's total self with another, a giving and receiving of love and affection, joy and fellowship. The Bible uniquely describes the sexual relationship of a man and wife in the most discreet way. It is common and set for sex to be described simply with one word. Adam knew his wife. 
I love that language because it speaks of something much more. In this way, the intimacy of sexual relationship is described. It has been said that the human being is the only creature in the animal kingdom that is capable and most naturally has sexual relationships face to face. The very design of our bodies speaks of this greater purpose of knowing one another. And I don't believe that that is an accident, but purposeful design and gift of God. The beauty of the design of the human body lends itself to intimacy, not animal passions. That's Sex is indeed something sacred and special that is lost in this world when it loses the beauty of creative design and, and purposes that God gave. It's profound and intimate. And as much as people want to deny that sex deny and say sex is just a physical act and and and, and so or something to that that idea when someone has sex with someone else, they know it's something more. And it's driven driven a lot of mental health issues in our world. This idea of sexual activity without meaning and purpose has done a great amount of damage. Well, I, I want to end there. And next time I want to get into this idea of the evangelistic purposes of sex. That it's meant to show us something more, something deeper, and a deeper need and a deeper desire that can only be fulfilled in God. But until next time. I hope you were able to enjoy this time together and the Lord has used this in a sense to be a blessing. And until next time, Lord bless.